people when they're eating. It's especially true because this is like a feast. Yeah. If we start, um, I've got a couple of people to pray for, but would anybody like to include anybody in our prayers this morning? Yeah, our friend Dick Carpenter, we all know him, our neighbor, she's in the hospital with sepsis. Sorry, Beth, with our, Linda, with what? Sepsis, the infected toe. Oh. It's all gone through the blood. Say, Don? Dick. 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 Help me out with names, please. Anybody else? Um, I pray for my daughter's having surgery on Monday. What is, what's your name, Mary? Annette. Annette. Okay. I'd like to offer a prayer for my daughter, who's going to have surgery in about three weeks. Mm-hmm. On her foot, and it's... Come back in two weeks. <laughs> <laughs> but it's a big surgery. I need a prayer all the way through. <laughs> I'm going to bank them. <laughs> I'll remind you every week. Good. Okay. Every week I will bring it up. Her name's Joanna. <laughs> She's making frowns at me right now. Oh, God. oh, help me with the names here. In the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Thank you again, Lord, for the gift of our life from you, the gift of yourself to us, especially in Mass this morning. Um, Help us to carry that life within us, um, nurture it, take it seriously, bring it to all that we do, particularly where people don't know you, Um, certainly not as much as we do with the gift that we carry. Um, Strengthen us in our efforts to make ourselves gifts, to give you away. Um, by what we ourselves do. Um, Father Raul asked us yesterday to go through the day saying, Here I am, Lord, I come to do your will. Let it be so. And I'd ask everybody um, to go through the day saying that, just periodically. A wonderful prayer. Here, Here we are, Lord, we come to do your will. Help us to do that. Um, We ask a special blessing on um, a number of people. Um, um, Connie, help me out. Connie's the one who... (coughs) She's just been diagnosed with stage four cancer and about four weeks to live. And, and, um, and Jay, yeah. Similarly, yeah. Um, watch over Connie. Um, ordeals are hard for everybody. Um, let this ordeal be a blessing for her. Um, so often reminded that, that we're asked to give things up. Um, Father Raul did this morning that if we lose all of our possessions, our house, we shouldn't, Paul, we shouldn't fret knowing that a larger possession, a much, much more wonderful possession awaits us. Um, help those people who are um, close to losing their lives and who know it find a blessing in that loss. Look forward in hope to being with you um, and help those who love them to share in that. Connie, Jay, 
Um, Mary, I'm sorry. Annette. Annette. Um, watch over Annette in her surgery. Keep her well. <coughs> Let no harm come to her. Um, uh, hmm? Yeah. Um, we are glad to have um, Sue back. Um, thank you for her good recovery. Kathy. 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 Sorry, Kathy. For her good recovery. Um, and watch over her daughter in, mm. over the next three weeks as she gets ready for her surgery. <laughs> Thank you. Um, who else? Dick. Uh, Dick. Dick. Um, be with Dick and surround him with your care. Ask a blessing on um, Fran, who has not been well. Um, um, Donna's going to take her to the hospital this morning. Surround her with your protection. Let no harm come to her. Watch over her. Um, help us all to be with you in this week. And Lynn. Oh, Lynn. Lynn Conklin. What's, I forgot what she... She has cancer in her mouth. Oh, yeah, yeah. Lynn? Mm. <clears throat> um, and Carolyn. Um, be Carolyn for Henry. She's starting chemo. Yeah, be with Carolyn as she starts this chemo. Um, let it go well for her. Ask a special prayer for Lynn. Um, the doctors made a mess of things. Um, help the people in whose care she is now. Um, um, take care of the. Um, problem that she's been left with. Um, protect her, keep her well, um, let her know your presence with her um, if there are any complications. Um, and we come to do your will. Help us to stand with you, to be in your presence, open to you in all that we do this day and through the next week until we meet again. We offer these prayers in your name, Lord. Amen. Can you pull out the, the poems? <clears throat> I'd meant to read these last week while we were still in the Renaissance because they go with Shakespeare and we just finished Shakespeare, as you know. So And... Um, I chose these poems because they had to do with death, and I was looking forward a week before last week, um, knowing that we were looking at the end of Winter's Tale and that we would be looking at death, a form of it. Lots of people died in Winter's Tale, and we know, all of you who've read it know that um, it ends with a resurrection, so out of this death came this extraordinary event, Hermione being reunited with Leontes. Leontes. The interesting thing is um, she hoped for a resurrection. She was alive. So she had to keep her husband in mind um, while she was alive. Um, as far as he knew, she was dead. So you can imagine how much more important that was for him in some ways to see his wife. Um, anyway, I had death on my mind and and as you remember from our last couple of talks, how important the resurrection is for us as a community. And 
And the argument that I was making that, that one of the differences between Christian art and any other kind of art, um, Judaic, Islamic, um, secular, is that at the center of any art that we take seriously should be this notion of a resurrection, renewal. When I watch movies, and I, I, we watch probably more than we should, certainly for me. Is that me? Um, the, the test of a good movie for me is how honestly, how deeply it um, explores sin. It really troubles me when Hollywood shallowly goes over everything. You know that 90% of everything coming out of Hollywood has to do with, what are they, G, CG stuff and, you know, everything's magnified and you've got all these catastrophes happening, but people never learn. I mean, they, they don't have to confront themselves and for me that's a loss. The really great stories help us to see something about ourselves that's not easy to see. So one of the marks of a good movie for me is how well somebody enters into a person or a relationship and explores it, looks at things that are not easy, and overcomes it. The measure of a great movie for me is how much love has to overcome, because ultimately it's the cross for us. So the resurrection is important, the, the, this principle of renewal, and we talked about this. So I had these poems, but I jumped into the... <laughs> into, um, Wintersdale and Moby Dick and forgot. So we're reading these today and the poems that we'll read after today will be from the Renaissance forward. They'll be more modern. Next week um, I'm gonna bring, I'm gonna read some poems of Jones Very. I think we read him before but it'll be appropriate because he was one of Melville's contemporaries. And he, he's an unknown American poet but his poetry is extraordinary. Some of the things he does is just lovely. A Quaker um, but I'll come back to that. So we'll, we'll come forward with our poetry um, in the following weeks. But I'd like to read these two poems before we put the Renaissance um, behind us. One is on my first son on the first page and the other is John Donne's um, tenth sonnet. <coughs> just a, just a, a quick note on, on my first son. Ben Johnson was a great poet one of the great poets in the Renaissance. Um, and in this poem, he's saying goodbye to his son. He, he's lost him. And it, it's interesting, just so much of his poetry is about actual experiences that he has, but he always um, distances himself to bring something impersonal, to be in control of his art. So even though he's talking about something personal, he brings a quality of detachment in what he does with his poems. You'll see it when we read it. In this poem, um, Dunn, or Johnson is chastised by the loss of his son. Um, when he loses him and he has to reflect on the meaning of this loss for him, he discovers that there was something too possessive in his love. And I'm trying I'm trusting everybody knows that, that this um, quality, I, I think one of the grave dangers to all of us, Christian, non-Christian, is possessive love. And I think most of the time we're not even aware of it. Um, and I think it's got to be particularly true racially, in racial groups, because there's an, a tendency to identify inwardly, racially. 
Um, um, one of C.S. Lewis's greatest books, I'm actually thinking about bringing this back to you guys after we do um, Go Down Moses, which is, as you know, Faulkner's answer to Melville's Moby Dick. It's about possessive love. Uh, it was Lewis's last book, and I think it's his greatest fictional. And people don't even know about the work, but it's an extraordinary book. Possessive love is that love where we say, um, it's mine. If you've seen The Fellowship, you know from Gollum. We have, well, the wonderful thing about The Fellowship is Gollum, I think, is an image of that in each one of us that takes that form. It's ugly, it's grasping, it's oily, um, it's facile. In, um, in its use of language, too glib, too quick. But everything about it is, it's mine, it's mine. That, that image of Gollum, I think, is an image of that quality in each one of us that says, my son, my wife, my husband, my home, my body, my body, my possessions, whatever they are. Um, Johnson lost his son, and he comes out of the experience with a feeling of being chastised. That he, that he realizes he held on too tightly and he should have let him go. Um, and as he reflects on it, he realizes that his son was only lent to him for a time. It was never meant to be his mind. You know? So when I read it, just keep that language in mind, the language of something being lent and exacted. A, a payment day comes, as it does for all of us. Okay? <coughs> and the Dunn poem is a, is a meditation on death where he tells death that death has nothing to be proud of because after Christ, everything has conquered him. So just keep those thoughts in your mind as I read, okay? <coughs> Johnson's on my first son. Farewell, thou child of my right hand and joy. My sin was too much hope of thee, love boy. Seven years thou wert lent to me and I thee pay, exacted by thy fate on the just day. Oh, could I lose all father now, if I could not have to experience what it means for a father to lose a child. Oh, could I lose all father now, for why will man lament the state he should envy? Son's going to go to heaven. To have so soon scaped the world's and flesh's rage, and if no other misery at age, Rest in soft peace and asked, Here doth lie Ben Johnson, his best piece of poetry, for whose sake henceforth all his bows be such as what he loves may never like too much. Um, it's a wonderful ending. He's imagining somebody coming to his son, dead, and asking him, What's the meaning of your life? And his son replies to this imagined person, here doth lie Ben Johnson, his best piece of poetry. It's a way his son has of paying his father a compliment in kind. That's how much he loved his father, that he's complimenting him, that he could look at himself as his child, as his best work. Because for Johnson, um, poetry was an extension of who he was. Uh, just like Christ with the word, the word, all his words. Hard to think of Christ... <coughs> It's hard to think of Christ and not see him as a poet because there was nothing he said that was disordered. Everything he said was perfectly expressed. How could it, he's the source of all poetry. So, 
So on my first son, Duns, Death Be Not Proud. By the way, we, we, we spent just a little bit of time on Scansion, not enough to do much with it, but I want you to remember, if you remember the, the traditional conventional line of English poetry is iambic, da-da, 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 da-da. And you know that um, odd feet are generally used um, to reinforce something, so a trochaic foot, or an inverted foot, da-da. So da 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 da. You all know what I'm talking. Um, let's see. Is Susan trochaic or iambic? Good, good ear. Uh, how about Suzanne? Simon, you all here, right? All all names in English are are moving in one direction. They're either a um, a lifting foot or a falling foot. Da da or da da, right? So. And the, the typical line in English is iambic, da -da, da -da, da -da, da -da, because it follows our spoken rhythms. That's the natural rhythm of our language, so poets naturally use that. When they use inverted feet, like trochees, it's usually like a form of counterpoint. It's the same thing you get in music. If you follow music, a counterpoint will suddenly make something jump out at you because it's so different, right? Poets know that. They're, they're musicians in a way. Look, look at the opening lines of Death Be Not Proud. You've got four, I can't, what's the, spon, a spondy is um, two syllables equally weighted, bum bum. That's a rare foot. Usually it's bum bum or bum bum. It's a rising foot, da da, or a falling foot, da da. Spondy is bum bum. Two stress feet. That's even more emphatic. This poem in, opens with something like two spondies. Bum, 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 bum. In fact, I'm going to do it like this. Bum, 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 bum. <laughs> I'm a little bit serious about that. It's a real question in my mind whether Beethoven wasn't reading this sonnet when he composed the, what is it, the Fifth Symphony. Bum, 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 bum. Death be not proud. Because you know the Fifth Symphony is a meditation on death. It's death knocking at the door. Bum, 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 bum. That's death knocking. And you know from the rest of the Beethoven Symphony that this is an extraordinary meditation on death. And here we've got an opening line that almost matches that. So um, let me read it. Death be not proud. Death be not proud, though some have called thee mighty and dreadful. For thou art not so. For those whom thou thinkest thou dost overthrow, die not, poor death. Nor yet canst thou kill me. From rest and sleep, which but thy pictures be, much pleasure. Then from thee much more must flow, and soonest our best men with thee do go. Rest of their bones and souls delivery. Thou art slave to fate, chance, kings, and desperate men. And dost with poison war and sickness dwell. And poppy or charms can make us sleep as well, and better than thy stroke. Why swellest thou then? You have nothing to be proud of. What's the point? You're going to be defeated with everything. Um, one short sleep past, we wake eternally, and death shall be no more. Death, thou shalt die. That's the Renaissance. It's behind us. Okay. Um, You guys can't see that very well, can you? Can you? 
just very quickly, I want to do a quick review. I really want to, um, I really want to, I didn't succeed on Monday night, um, but I want to try to get into the chapters at the beginning of Moby Dick here. Um, but I want to, I want to cover this background material because, as you, as you know, I, I think it's always important when we're reading a novel to try to have some larger sense of some of the things that are going on so we have some things in mind when we get into it. Um, a couple of things coming out of Winter's Tale. One of the most important is how important Christian art is and the principle of the resurrection. We talked about that. Um, Winter's Tale ends with that extraordinary um, event in the chapel with Paulina um, cho um, choreographing, I don't like, serving. It's almost a ministerial act. She is the, almost there like a priest, um, serving to bring Hermione and Lantes together. But she does it through the agency of that statue, this work of art. She and um, Hermione have, um, have concealed Hermione's um, actually being alive, waiting on the oracle. So um, we come to that final scene um, with Hermione coming down out of this statue. Shakespeare could have managed that. I hope it's clear to everybody. Shakespeare could have managed that some other way. She could have sat there. He doesn't do that. He, 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 he focuses our attention on a work of art and shows a person coming out of it. It's a reminder of how, how realistic art can be to us sometimes. You all know that, I'm assuming, because I'm assuming you've all had experiences when you watched a movie and cried, wept. You know, um, so there are times when in the middle of mass, I'll get teary with a song, with a song, a certain song will touch something off in me. And um, there have been times in movies when I've come out really angry or what they're doing or, or in tears. And, um, art can move us that much. So there's some intimate correspondence between our, our actual living experiences and the word, the word art. So Shakespeare's not only dealing with his winter's tale, this long penance and this and what's what's um, what's been brought back. I asked that question, what does Perdita mean? Is it just the recovery of Perdita, the, the young girl, the daughter? Or is it more and I think we I think we talked about this, that um, what's the that which is lost is found. What's found when she returns is this I mean, how is to describe it except everything? Everything's returned. It, it's like a, um, a foretaste of heaven, that there are these glorious things that suddenly come about, and it, it makes for a fulfillment, not only a fulfillment, a fulfillment everywhere, but also an elevation. Everybody is super elevated. The, the peasants are made into gentlemen. You know, grace is working everywhere. So what happens at the end of that play is extraordinary, all, and it's all a reminder of a kind of art that should be at the center of our Christian faith. Okay, so we've been talking a lot about art. I want to just offer three more qualities before we put this away. Um, Alan Tate says that poetry gives us knowledge carried to the heart. We're not in philosophy, we're not in our heads, we're not in abstractions. It's a knowledge that we experience that takes us to our hearts. So it helps us 
It helps to awaken things in our hearts to feel things so that we, um, we carry that out to what we do. It's a knowledge carried to the heart. If we look at what we've been reading, I'd say that um, poetry offers us a kind of consolation. It's one of the things that it consoles us. It compels belief. Sometimes we're so caught up in something that we believe it, we enter into it. But it does that while it offers consolation, it consoles us. So in the hardships of our life, our daily lives, even in, even in the hardship of, of facing judgment with God, which I think is a, should be a serious thing for all of us, poet, it's, like, it's like the word Christ indirectly in our world, consoling us, helping, offering help. So art offers that's a form of consolation. It can ease us in our struggles, our trials. Um, and finally, to go back to Wintersdale, art is mimetic. Remember, it's, it's imitative. It imitates life. And what Shakespeare makes clear in Winter's Tale, if, if art imitates nature, nature is not going to be the same for somebody who's Jewish or Muslim. There's got to be a principle of resurrection, renewal in it to overcome things and renew. Because at the center of our faith is the resurrection, renewal, new life. So if art is mimetic for a Christian, it has to offer some sense of a renewal. That's what, set, that's what would set it off from any art produced in the Jewish community or the Islamic community or the secular community. And you all know that because if, if any of you watch movies at all, you may be more sane than I am. Um, you know that so much of the art coming out of Hollywood is sentimental, cynical, horrible. I mean, 70% of the stuff coming out of Hollywood deals with horrors. They're horror movies. What do they call it? That, that blood infest stuff, the grindhouse, whatever it's called. Just, but it, almost none of it. And none of it can go to the depths of sin and come out of it in love, because that's not the center of its belief. It is for us. So, so um, we've talked about poetry often. Pauline, Paulina and Hermione are two of the most extraordinary figures I'm aware of in all of literature. And I suggested last week that one of the reasons Paulina is so strong, um, and unlike the men, because all the men that surround her, um, Leontes are cowardly, they, they just do not confront him, is that the men depend on him for their livelihood, so they're, they're not going to challenge him. Hermione, and by force, she's forced out of that circle, and Paulina stand outside of that circle. Paulina, um, if we look at the family relationship historically, traditionally, the family's always been at the center of civilization. It's the principle of renewal. Civilization can't renew if a family. That was one of the themes of the, of the Odyssey. The family's at the center of it, and traditionally the man has always been on the margin defending it. Women have entered that, that world now. One of the questions that seemed to me Shakespeare is raising in Wintersdale is, what happens to a woman when she enters that circle, when she enters the work world today, and she becomes dependent on it? Was she which, how, how likely is it that she will stand in that same kind of freedom, challenging? Um, 
So we've got two images of extraordinary women, um, um, a wife being obedient and submitting, knowing that she's, as she says herself, she's going to go on this ordeal for her own faith on one hand, and Paulina challenging, telling the men if they get close to her, she's going to scratch out their eyes. Um, two wonderful women. Um, and Antilochus, remembers the, the clown, the thief, um, and we've talked about it. It's so easy to go through the last two acts of Winter's Tale and almost get bored because we've come out of this intense, noble, tragic action in the first half where all these noble things happen. And we seem to go into this pastoral world where nothing happened. And yet it's there that we, that we receive the sense that the gods are at work. Something's happening, bringing something about. And Autolycus is instrumental because if he's not around, none of the things that happened could have happened. He, he facilitates them. And there's the, there are those lines where he says, um, um, how does he put it? Um, even injustices thrive. Because remember, he doesn't have to do anything. All these things are happening. He's getting paid, and he, he doesn't have to be crooked anymore. It's like, he's in, it's like he's in a world of grace, and he doesn't know it. So um, we, through him, we watch this divine action take place, that, that something besides man is helping to bring about this resolution at the end. And it's important to see that, I think, um, for a number of reasons. Remember I read those lines, I don't have the play here, but remember I read those lines when um, Antigonus brings the babe, Perdita, to drop her off, to abandon the babe, and the, the, the shepherd, the father, and the son report the event, and they describe the horrors of the men crying on the ship as the ship goes down. And then he has that comic line where he's describing the bear having dinner <laughs> on the man. And I read those lines, remember? We don't hear lines. I mean, that's a, that belongs to a comic world. We've just witnessed these horrible things in Cecilia. Now we're in Bohemia, in this pastoral world, and, and Shakespeare signals a change through the language. He describes the bear having dinner on a man. I mean, what a comic line. Who, who talks about somebody dying as if, if we were, if we were going to describe somebody, particularly somebody close, but if we were going to describe somebody die or dying, we would never, if being eaten by a bear, we'd never say the bear is having a meal on, or, you know, or having dinner. It's Shakespeare's way of showing we've entered a new kind of world and our perspective should broaden. Because when we're in, when we're in a moment of grief, it's overwhelming. But all of us know that at some point, when we put some distance between ourselves in that moment, we look at it differently. And sometimes we can even laugh at things that made us cry because our faith will help us to see things in a different way. We've entered that world in the second half of the play. It's comic, it's funny. Um, it helps us to see that in, while this, the effects of this tragedy linger, all these bad things happen, other things are going on. And it's important for us to enter into them because it helps broaden our view. We know that more is going on. Um, okay. Let's see, we talked briefly about the difference between the epic and the novel. I don't want to go into these, um, just except just briefly. The novel means new. 
Epic, as you remember, those of you who've been here from the beginning know, epic means epos, epic, word, word. But word for the Greek is much closer to what um, a Christian would understand word to be, a logos. There's an intelligibility, a depth of meaning. It can mean a song. So epos, epic, the word, means a divine word. You know that all the epics um, show the gods involved in some difficulty men are facing. So the gods are constantly acting, involved with men, helping them to bring about some resolution to a disorder they're not aware of. Every epic is shown a people struggling with some disorder. They don't see it very well and they're blind. The gods are involved and they help bring about some resolutions. Some new thing enters the world that makes it possible for a people to have a new identity of itself. That's how important it is. So epic has always been that kind of a thing. Now think about that. I mean, really, really think about it. Think about what's missing in our culture in not having an epic vision. We live in a secular world where such things don't exist anymore. Um, and I've argued before, you know, for, for a long time when we were in the epic world that, that um, the, the Iliad and the Odyssey belong with Genesis. They're founding works. We should never lose touch with them because they help us see our beginnings, who we are as a people. It's about the founding of the West. Um, the epic is, um, is a cosmic vision of the world. It shows the gods involved with men. The novel is new. It's empirical. It's secular. The gods aren't there. Now, what we're going to see really clearly is in Moby Dick and in Faulkner, that's not going to be so. Both Melville and Faulkner are novelists in one sense, in the sense that they show the world naturalistically as, as it appears to us. They're not going to show the gods involved, but it's really clear when you read their works, they see the divine working. That'll be especially true with Faulkner in the Snopes trilogy. It's one of the most amazing works of the 20th century. If you read, that, if you read the last work of that trilogy closely called The Mansion, you can't come away with that without shaking your head and saying, coincidence after coincidence after coincidence after coincidence. When coincidences pile up, it's no longer reasonable. It's no longer reasonable to say they're all accidents. When the modern secular mind says accidents or chance, when coincidences piled up, that's an, un that's an unreasonable position. What Faulkner's showing is that a god, god is taking care of his house. He's cleaning house in the south actually is what's happening. So the modern novel tends to be secular. Um, God's not present in it. In the great works that we're looking at, um, even if modern critics don't see God, it's pretty clear if you read these books well that Melville and Faulkner are seeing something most people don't. So um, We've talked about the importance of this time, 19th century, mid-19th century. We're in the middle of a crisis. Two ways of reading the world are in conflict, biblical and scientific. That's at the heart of Moby Dick, absolutely at the heart. Ahab is a tragic figure. We can say in the terms in which I've been talking about these works for so long, that he's a bad reader. Um, he sees this whale as having um, inflicted this pain on him, this injury. And he wants to get back. It's a vengeance story. 
Um, so he has, only, he has one thing in mind. It's like people who get so practical-minded that they want to get from here to there to get this accomplished. We know from Leontes, and I argue, that that's very much a quality of the masculine intellect, that men tend to be that way, very um, efficient to get from here to there. Insofar as women have stepped into the masculine world, it's a question in my mind how much they take on themselves today, share that same thing. Ahab wants to take vengeance on that will. Ishmael is a good reader in this sense. He begins the quest with, Ish or with Ahab. He wants to join the quest. He wants to get back with him. But gradually he dissociates himself from it. And over the course of that work, what we see is he's a good reader in this sense. He's open to everything. He wants to know the meaning of things. Lots of people read Moby Dick and find it boring. You get to the cytology chapter and he outlines all the whales just like a scientist would. You think, what? Why? Because for Ishmael, everything means. He wants to understand the meaning of things, so he's completely open to everything. There's nothing that happens that doesn't awaken a curiosity. So we get chapter after chapter on the whale, the sperm whale, the inside of a whale, sharks. There's nothing he doesn't look at. And in that sense, it seems to me, he, he is, the, for the first time since the Protestant Reformation, he, he is a, the figure for the first time to take us back to Dante, because that's Dante's world. Because Dante believed everything was intelligible. God made the world. He's everywhere in it. Ishmael is returning us that world. He will not confront anything without looking into its meaning, to ask what's there. So very, two very different readings. One's tragic, one's comic. And I'm going to say one's prophetic, because it's Ishmael that comes back to help us see that way, to discover what he's discovered. So one of the, one of the questions we have to keep with us over the reading of Moby Dick is, um, Ishmael is a Jonah figure. That becomes really clear in the beginning. I'll, I'll try to make that clear in a minute. Ishmael is a Jonah figure. He's the only one to survive that wreck. And you'll see the parallels between him and Jonah in the very beginning. I'll, I'll go over them shortly. But he's a Jonah figure. He's the only one to survive. Everybody else tragically perishes because of what Ahab does. If the Pequod is an is a image of America, and I believe it is, then Melville is saying America is on its way down. And Moby Dick is about that descent, its destruction. I hope everybody, however nervous it makes you, I hope everybody can see the relevance for us today on our way down. What does he come back to tell us? What does he have to, to tell us? Remember, Jonah helped turn the Ninevites around. Right? They were on their way to being destroyed by God. If we're the Ninevites, what do we have to learn that, that will help us not go down to avert this disaster that we're headed for, according to Melville? Um, so Ishmael, I would say, takes us back to Dante. The, the one thing that I wanted everybody to keep in mind when you think about the differences between the epics and what Melville is doing is so important, you can overlook it, and yet it's, it's an amazing um, truth. If you look at all epics up, up to Melville's time and all novels, all, all narratives, serious narratives, epics, novels, dealt with injustices. Not a one. Every, every epic deals with some, why would we read them otherwise? I mean, there's no adventure. 
we read them because we want to know what's going to happen. There's some problem, some problem somebody's dealing with, and we read the story to see what happens, right? In every story we've read, at the center of the story is some injustice. The Iliad, the Odyssey, it's, it's um, Hector and the Trojans taking Paris, taking Helen. Odysseus with the suitors, right? They've, they've got, they've put his house in shambles, they've got control of the house. Aeneas, cities are dying out. Nineveh, modern America, that's what the Aeneid was about. The founding of a city that will be eternal. Rome, the eternal city, that isn't subject to the decay that all other cities are, because all cities in the Aeneid, as you remember, die out. Something happens. Where are we in that? Are we dying out? There's a disorder, some wrong. Melville's Moby Dick is the only story that I'm aware of up to that time that, where the injustice lies in nature itself. Not a man. In every other story, a man had to go against a man. Achilles against Hector. Odysseus against the suitors. Aeneas against Turnus, right? Um, um, let's say Dante against Satan, because he was on his way to being damned, those of you who remember it. Um, in Melville's Moby Dick, Melville, through Ahab, is raising this question of whether or not nature is not inherently evil. And it's, it's a very Protestant, it, this idea entered the West through the Reformation. Calvin and Luther both looked at nature as if it were depraved. Milton's line is all corrupt, all corrupt. The effects of the fall were complete. Man lost his free will, he's depraved. He can't, he can't get out of his depravity without Christ. That's the view that enters the West in the Reformation. So in Moby Dick, Ahab is the figure that Melville uses to explore the cultural effects of that. Ahab is distraught with it. I mean, we'll read some lines as you, um, it's a metaphysical quest. He wants to know if there's an evil agency, some malignant force behind nature explaining what the whale did to him. Because he can't believe it's just an accident. The question for Ahab is whether there isn't some malevolent force, some malevolent thing, and that nature is what he calls a cardboard mask. And he says, I want to strike through that mask to get to that thing beyond. So the nature of his quest is metaphysical. He wants to understand the nature of things. And he and Ishmael in that way line up. Ishmael wants to know the metaphysical causes of things. But every, everything Ishmael looks at is good. Ahab's got this question of this evil in the world. So this is the first time in a, in a book in which the injustice is associated with nature. And we have, we, we have a story of a man in conflict with nature itself. Okay? So a very, very different, I'm going to say it's an epic. We can call it a novel. It seems to me it's a modern American epic. Okay. Um, one last thing about Melville, just, um, I, I mentioned this before, that mid-19th century, we're at a point where America is beginning to become self-conscious of itself. It's a century away from our 
our Revolutionary War, and it's become it's becoming clearer and clearer that that America has has begun to dissociate itself from England in the way that it views itself. It's no longer a branch, a colony of England. It's an independent nation, a people with its own identity. And if that's going to happen, they have to learn to understand the nature of its identity, Moby Dick, and they have to find their own tongue. <coughs> because up until that time, if you read American po poets or novelists, they're in an English idiom. If you look at James Finnemore Cooper or Long, Longhorn or all, you know, all the early artists in America, they're virtually English in their writing. Mid-19th century, Hawthorne, Melville, Walt Whitman is the great poet. Um, all those men are struggling to find an idiom of their own. And another way of seeing how important this is, is just remember this. If you look at all 19th century novels in Europe, and particularly England, because England, we, we grew out of England. England's our immediate roots. Um, if you look at English novels in the 19th century, they're all secular, every single one of them. Fielding, Dickens, Austen, Thackeray, Trollope, George Eliot, you name, you read any of those novels. Jane Austen to me stand, Jane Austen and Dickens for me stand above all of them and it's almost impossible to find God in them. Jane Austen never, she's, she's, she's one of the most extraordinary artists to me in my mind. It, I, I feel like I owe her my eyes, that's how deeply I, how, the debt I feel for her, what she gave me when, after I read her when I realized, I mean, she's, sort, she's extraordinary. You'll never see her dealing with theological themes. She doesn't deal with God, and yet she's extraordinary. She, she's the one artist in my mind that, that, that picks up with Shakespeare. I think she does as well as she did because she was a good reader of Shakespeare. She's the one who opened the domestic world, the, the world at home, and the, the, the real nature of adult love between man and woman. Nobody shows it as completely as she does. The adult love of a man and woman, what it means. I mean, she's extraordinary in doing that. But God doesn't appear in the world. Nowhere in English novels do you find novels dealing in any explicit way with God. You can't read mid-19th century American novelists, the great ones, Melville, Hawthorne, and not deal with God. So one of the differences between America and England is this preoccupation with the religious matters. That's at the heart of our identity. And by the way, I'm going to make a statement on, I mean, some of you may argue with this, but I'm going to say, it's one of the reasons why we're so violent. Put those two things together. English has stayed next to us, decorous, proper. We go nuts. We kill people. We, we have in our Protestant upbringing this apocalyptic, this millennialist, this things are going to happen now, that we're at the edge of things. So in the American character, there is this, um, there's this preoccupation with divine matters. And, and as you know, modern America is, is um, post-biblical. I mean, we live in a non-Christian world. We are losing our religious roots, and it seems to me we're becoming even more violent, not less. So, so we've entered a new world here in Moby Dick. This is our America. This is the America that we've inherited. The problems that Melville is looking at are ours, I'm going to argue. So to read Moby Dick is to learn to see things about our own national character 
that are important for us to know. Okay, um, and remember at the heart of this epic is this question how important reading is. I've been hitting you over the head with this from the beginning, but it's you've got two very different ways of reading. You've got Ahab and you've got um, Ishmael, and the background of it is two very different ways of reading, scientific, biblical, and those two ways do not resolve. They are in conflict. Um, let me stop. I, I want to I go to the Abraham story now, but um, the opening books, wait, before I stop, sorry, the opening books of, of the opening chapters of Moby Dick are a pretty clear indictment of Christianity. If you look at, I don't think I have that. If you look at um, Peter Coffin, right, is the landlord of the Spouters Inn. That's where Ishmael stays that first night. Peter Coffin, Father Mapple, who gives the sermon, yeah. Um, Mrs. Hussey, it's where they stay at Nantucket. Remember, she wants to break the door down, if you've gotten that far, because she had somebody commit suicide. And the fact that she might have to pay for another door is of more concern for her than the life of the person behind that locked door. Elijah, quick, quick. What is Melville doing with every one of those figures? Let me give them again. Peter Coffin, the owner of the, the landlord of the inn, right? Father Mapple in his sermon. Um, Mrs. Hussey, she owns the boarding house. Peleg, oh, and Peleg and Bildad, the owners of the ship. And re remember, when you get the Father Mapple story, we'll look at it. When he tells the Jonah story, remember he says, the captain is a cupiditous man. He's greedy. And he tests out his passengers because it's on the basis of his judgment whether they're criminal or not that he'll adjust his fee. So if he thinks that there's something wrong, he knows they'll hide and won't challenge him. So the captain charges Jonah more, and he knows he's a thief. He's running from God. What does um, Bildad charge, or what does he offer to pay Ishmael? Do you remember? 777. Yeah, 777 lay, which is nothing. He's cheating him. So immediately, Melville is establishing the parallel between Jonah and Ishmael. Ishmael is, run, in some sense, we're meant to see it this way, Ishmael is running from God. He's running away, he's hiding, he doesn't know it. Um, so look at every one of those characters. Peter Coffin, Mapple, Father Mapple, Mrs. Hussey, Peleg, Bildad, Elijah, the prophet, who has all these warnings when they go on ship. See if you can find them, see if you can find them. And then Queequeg, who's a barbarian. Because remember, anytime Ishmael and Queequeg are this, this uh, upstanding, um, respectable Protestant white man, walking through town with his barbarian on his arm. And he, and he says, all the Presbyterians look at them with skewed eyes. In fact, it, it, early in the, in the story, Ishmael seems to renounce his Presbyterian faith. Um, we'll get to that passage. So, and the Presbyterian church then, or the, or the Protestant church at large, however we're going to look at it. What is Melville showing us about 19th century modern American Christianity? Because if you look at every one of those passages, we learn to see there's something wrong. 
people are not living their faith. This is a failed Christian world. So the opening, the opening chapters are an indictment of Christianity. It's failures. The, sh the, the voyage at sea will be um, a probing of metaphysical reality. Remember, what happens at sea? The sea's not our home. That's where strange things happen. It's that where we, where we go with Ahab to deal with these more metaphysical depths. And it's, it's there that we'll, we'll encounter metaphysical aspects of, of Christianity that nobody's dealing with. So let me stop there before I, before I go into the Abraham story. Any questions? Big surprise. Well, it's just, you know, I'm, I'm with you, but there's just one thing you said that I, I guess I was looking at a little different. Yeah. When you said Ish, that Ishmael was running from God, mm -hmm. it seemed to me like whenever things started going south on him, he turned to the sea. I mean, he, he, he said as much. In, in the, the beginning. In the beginning. Yeah. So, and, and the sea is, I, I guess I was kind of looking at as as nature. You know, or the, the place where one sees nature or nature is drawing it. So I, I never really looked at that as him running from God as more as searching. Yeah. yeah. I, I, um, I think you're right. So there, I don't think there's a difference between us at all there. I'm saying this just in light of the, the Jonah quality of Ishmael's character that that we have to ask about when we get to the end. So when you get to when you put the whole thing together, you have to ask, um, what what is what is he hiding from? What is he running from? One of the things that seems to me that comes to mind that, that we're asked to ask ourselves as we read Father Mample's sermon is, if this is a general critique of Christianity, and it seems to me it, it is, lots of people come away from it saying. Melville hated God and he had a, as a quarrel with God. I, I don't believe that's true, but but one of the things we come away from if we hold on to that, that Father Mample's sermon, the Jonah story, is that people in Jonah's position allow themselves to be cheated because they are hiding from something and they don't know it. In the Jonah story, it's made explicit. He's running from God. In Ishmael, it's not explicit. but. The jo one of the things that the Jonah story forces on us is how many of us, I'm going to put this generally for all of us, how many of us use our work to hide from things? Allow ourselves to be cheated because we're hiding from things. We won't question them. We go along. Jonah does that, and the captain sees it, takes advantage of it. Bildad has that sense of Ishmael, that there's something not right for him, for him to take that s salary, because that's a cheating salary. It's, an, it's, it's degrading if you think about what the 777th lay is nothing on a voyage like that. So um, how many of us give our lives, in Christian terms, we hear this in homilies all the time, in Christian terms, what are we giving our lives for? You know, we're doing everything we can to run away from God um, and we're willing to, to endure all these other things until they become too much for us and we reach a point of saying, now what, um, what's the meaning of my life? What have I lived for? What have I... You know, uh, so there's that sort of buried aspect. It's it's handled. It's presented indirectly. Every time I feel this, in this mood, I and find myself bringing up funeral lines and wanting to take a pistol and shoot people. You know, he doesn't go into things, but clearly something's not right with Ishmael. He's missing something. Yeah, and he doesn't know. 
I mean, remember, truly, he doesn't know. This, this, is, this story is like Dante's. There's two Ishmaels. There's the, the voyager, he's going on the voyage, and there's the poet who's come back who's going to write it. And the Ishmael we're seeing in the beginning is the innocent Ishmael. He's just going to see. There's a lot that he doesn't know that clearly we're going to see at the end. He's a changed man. He goes through a number of conversions in the book, a number of them. So what, one of the last things we'll have to answer is what's the difference between Ishmael when he started the story, where he doesn't seem to see very much, and Ishmael at the end, um, who's gone through all these things. And they're important enough for him that he wants to come back and tell the story. Who is that Ishmael? He's not the same man we're seeing here. So um, there's a lot that's implied that... that well, I say all the various names of the characters seem to have some kind of implication. Yep. Yep. They have Ishmael. Yep. Yep. That's a 19th century technique, too. I mean, lots of writers did that. Um, Okay, I just wanted to, um, I wanted to look at the Abraham. This whole question of our faith, this is such a tough thing. You, you, know, you know from our time together that I take very seriously trying to keep my focus on the book, believing that if we, if we keep our focus there on what's in front of us and read it well, we will discover things I'm claiming that very often teachers don't see. Um, we're asked not to read into things. That, that's been a concern of mine all along. Remember when we started the Iliad together, and it becomes really clear that nobody reads well in that book. All the men blame everybody else. You know, they, they've got, they live under this honor code and it makes them see things in a certain way and there's some things wrong with it. And, so reading has been important, not just theoretically as, as, a, for, as a teacher with people, but in the works themselves. It's, it's very much a part of, it helps explain what the characters do, how we understand them. When you say reading, you're talking about interpreting, right? Right, right. Well, yes, to understand, well, I'm, I'm avoiding that. literal. Right. I'm avoiding that word interpreting because we usually mean Except for interpretation, you can make of it what you want. I want to avoid it, but yes, yeah, I'm done. It's for me. It's it's learning to understand what's actually there, not something more. We don't want to remember. Saint Thomas says, "Truth is the conformity of the mind with things." We have to learn to conform our mind to think to see what's there, not make something that's not. So, and Ahab is making a certain meaning of the world. world Ishmael is trying to read it to understand what's there. He's, he, that's why I'm saying he's a better reader. Um, one, of the, one of the concerns that I have that... Um, so I've had this concern all along to try to read well, believing because of the works that I've chosen, that um, we would learn something about our faith together. To, to learn to see that there are things going on in nature that actually help our faith and it's important to see them. Melville's Moby Dick is a critique of Christianity. It's an indictment of it, really. A serious indictment. There's the, the Christian world that he shows us in the beginning is failing, just in failure. So where are we as Catholics? Now, and I said today I would step out of my 
place as a teacher and speak as a catechist, it makes me a little bit nervous, actually. Um, I think you know that I have, I have not avoided speaking about her faith all along. I tried to speak to it really directly. When there was some warrant in the book, I would speak pretty directly because it's important. It's what we're doing here. Um, today I want to speak about it directly because Ishmael is the major figure and he presents a real problem. Ishmael, as you know, or I think you know, is the head of Islam. He's the ultimate source of Islam. We've got a, we've got a problem to deal with here. Why did Melville choose Ishmael as his narrator? We know, by the way, don't forget this, Ishmael's Presbyterian. He's a Christian. He's not Islam in this book. Although he seems to turn away from his Presbyterian faith you know, because of what happens. So we've got a problem here, and I just don't want to skirt it particularly because of the nature of our work together. So this morning I, I thought what I'd do is go over some catechetical things, hopefully to settle some things, hopefully, and hopefully to open up some things in the way we read this. As you all know, Abraham was called out by God to found a nation, a people. And um, at one point... Um, Sarai told, his name is Abram to begin, Abram and Sarai, told her husband to mate with their maidservant, Hagar, because she couldn't conceive. So Abraham and Hagar, or Abram, um, and Hagar mate and produce Ishmael. And you know that later, when, um, when Sarai sees Hagar look at her with contempt because she has a child by Sarai's husband and, and Sarai doesn't, Sarai's response is, send that woman out of here. Get her out. And he does. He sends her out. Um, and... Um, God watches over them and brings them back so they're okay. And then God makes it clear to Abram that um, he will establish a new covenant, covenant and he will have a child with Sarai. He establishes that new covenant and to mark that new covenant, a a or, uh, Abram's name is changed. It becomes Abraham. That name marks the beginning of a new covenant with God. And Sarai becomes Sarah. She will have that child. That child with, with Abram um, is Isaac. And Isaac is the chosen one. He's the one that's going to carry on the line that will go to, Moses, or to David and to Christ, ultimately. So Christ comes from that line. That's so important because you can see God working through time to get to Christ. Ishmael is the outcast one. He's the outcast. He's the outcast one. So Melville chose Ishmael as the narrator of this book. Why? And remember, I, just looking ahead, I mean, I just keep this in mind because we have something special, I think, ahead of us. Faulkner loved Moby Dick, said it was his favorite book. He wished he could have written it, he says. And he wrote a book called Go Down Moses. And the central figure of that 
collection, that novel, is Isaac. So in the north, we've got the outcast one. And in the south, in Faulkner, you've got Go Down Moses, which is about Isaac, the chosen one. We've got two modern writers dealing with modern America going back to its founding, who we are as a people. And, and notice the difference. Does anybody in, in Europe do this? The English? Nowhere. I mean, it's stunning. Stunning what's going on in America. We can only hold on to it or recover it, I guess, or, or renew it. I used that language earlier. Um, Go Down Moses was a, a, a work that Faulkner put together roughly around the middle of his writing career when he realized that a number of short stories that he had written all have to do with the same thing. So when you read Go Down Moses, you're going to be reading a collection of short stories. It's not a novel. It's not a continuous going. But every story relates to this theme. And it's going to be interesting because we can read short stories then. It'll be a, it'll be a break for us in some sense. They're short. But they all come to this whole question of the Isaac inheritance, the covenant, from different perspectives. Um, so when you put Moby Dick and Go Down Moses together, you've sort of got the, the whole of our past in modern America. Who knows that? God. You guys are lucky. No, I mean, I really, you really are. I mean, I just think, most, who knows this? You kids coming out of school don't know this. God. Don't get me started. Robert, Robert, don't get you started. Sorry, don't want to blame you guys for that. Here. I want to I I look at Genesis for a second. Um, in Genesis 16, um, Sarah asks Abram to meet with Hagar. Um, and Sari sends Hagar and the child away. This is what the Bible says. The angel of the Lord said to her, Return to your mistress and submit to her. The angel of the Lord also said to her, I will so greatly multiply your descendants that they cannot be numbered for multitude. This is about Ishmael. This is God. A real problem here. Did God anticipate Muhammad? I don't even want to go there. But this is his response to Ishmael anyway. I mean, whatever Muhammad made of it, I mean, that's not a biblical thing. But we know here Muhammad refers to Ishmael as the founder of his line. Um, but at least at this point, scripturally, God says to um, Hagar, your son will multiply numerously. And the angel of the Lord said to her, behold, you are with a child and shall bear a son. You shall call his name Ishmael because the Lord has given heed to your affliction. Listen to this. He shall be a wild ass of a man, his hand against every man and every man's against him. He shall so dwell against his kinsmen. So she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her. Thou art a God of seen, and they return. Now, interesting, later, um, when the kids are playing, um, Sarah wants Ishmael sent away again. And she cast out Hagar another time with the child. This is in, in Genesis 21 now. And this is the way it unfolds. When the water and the skin was gone, the two of them are, have been abandoned, kicked out. 
She cast the child under one of the bushes. She doesn't want to see the child die. She doesn't want to see Ishmael. This is her child. She knows they're going to die. They've been cast out. She cast the child under one of the bushes. Then she went and sat down over against him a good way off, about the distance of a bowshot. For she said, Let me not look upon the death of the child. And as she sat over against him, the child lifted up his voice and wept. And God heard the voice of the lad. God's responding to Ishmael crying. God heard the voice of the lad, and the angel God called to Hagar from heaven and said to her, What troubles you, Hagar? Fear not, for God has heard the voice of the lad, where he is God is safe, rescuing Ishmael. Um, he's heard the voice of the lad where he is. Arise, lift up the lad, and hold him fast with your hand, for I will make him a great nation. Then God opened her eyes, and she saw a well of water, and she went and filled the skin with water and gave the lad a drink. And God was with the lad, and he grew up, and he lived in the wilderness. Now think about this. This is, this is scriptural. So it has the authority. It's, this, is, this is God. Um, he, he promised that Ishmael would be the leader of a great nation, that he would put his hand against everybody else, and everybody else would put his hand against him. So, um, and just to, I want to try to enlarge the context to help out in, in the way we read this. God calls Abraham out. The line moves through David to Christ. Christ is born. And as, as we believe and understand, um, he is God himself finally, the Messiah, long awaited, who has come. And you know the difficulty that presented because the disciples and everybody else thought, if the Messiah was going to come, he would come in glory, you know, defeating the Roman Empire and finally answering all of Israel's problems. And he's rejected by the Jews. So as we understand it, because God is, God is with us, what's the name? Emmanuel. Emmanuel, yeah, thanks. God is with us, Emmanuel. That line carries forward through today. Judaism, from this point on, because it rejects him, it's, it, we can say, I don't know how you want to put this, systematic, heretical, power. it existed before Christ came, the Jewish tradition. But according to the truth that he reveals, it swerves, it, it splits off. Islam is a breaking off of Judaism. And one of the interesting things that happens here is this. Christ came to fulfill the law, not to break it. He says, I came to fulfill it. He brings love and mercy together. That was the great theme of the divine, or of the divine comedy. You know that the purgatory was the bringing together of law and mercy. So, the the law that was fundamental to Abraham gets continued, but but it's transformed in some ways by the love God brings to it and the divine mercy. I hope that's clear. And we talked about that with Dante. If we have law alone, it becomes inhumanly harsh. If you have mercy alone, it becomes um, destructive, chaotic. But the great challenge facing Christianity was to bring both of those together, and that's what Christ did. That's what he's left us with. Islam breaks off from Judaism and the law, and it makes both of these religions keep law at their center. The, the, um, the Sharia law of Islam, right? 
And it's interesting to watch those two peoples because remember, if you make justice the, the defining principle of your life, the law, the justice, that means you're going to be particularly sensitive to injustices because who can live up to them? I mean, the, Christ came to show that as righteous as somebody Jewish was, he could never completely fulfill the law. There were two, the Pharisees and the Sadducees and all of them, there were these deep-seated faults in people who live under the law. The, the eventual fruit of the law, according to Christ and Paul, is death. <coughs> death. None of us can survive it. it. If all we have is the law, we're all going to be damned. So you have two peoples who define their lives by the law, which means everything they do is acutely sensitive to injustices. When you put those together, what's going to happen? They're going to be at war forever. Mm -hmm. there, there is not a divine mercy helping them. Christ came into the world to bring a mercy that was divine because humans are incapable of bringing it to <coughs> all their problems. So, so this is what we're faced with today. Now the interesting thing about, <coughs> about the differences that emerge here is this. Mohammed has a private vision. He's in a cave. He has a private vision and claims that he saw God and um, he does all of his writings out of that private vision. So you've got Muhammad having a private revelation. Can it be verified? How can it be verified? Who is there? How do we know? Um, and he claims um, that the ultimate source of Islam is Ishmael. That's the authority on which he bases his religious. So that's Islam in the modern world. Christ comes into the world and what we've got is a very different thing. Because with Christ we don't have a vision, we have an actual thing. A person. He enters the world. We have historical records about it. We get records of Christ um, from various points of view. These are the synoptic gospels. They're all roughly the same in some way. And John. So we've got a, a variety of perspectives dealing with this person called Christ. Um, and so it's not a private revelation, it's an actual historical fact. Something happened in the world that was completely different from anything that had ever happened before that moment. And will be different <coughs> from anything that ever happens afterwards. If God entered the world, nothing like it happened. Even if people had some sense of it in the imagination. It would have not gotten close. It radically changed the world. And nothing like it can happen since. Will happen. So you've got two very fundamentally different ways of looking at the world. Um, what did Christ, what did Christ um, bring to us? Why was he here? Um, now, compare this with Judaism and Islam with their preoccupation with the law, how important the law is. It's still important here, um, but it's complemented by something else. Why did Christ came? He came to offer us atonement, to expiate for our sins, so that we might see salvation. That means, if he's God, according to him, we could not attain salvation on our own no matter how well we live, lived up to the law. Okay? He came to 
to atone for our sins, and he wouldn't have done that if we could have done it ourselves under the law. He's offering us something that we couldn't bring to, um, to, our, to atone for ourselves, to make up for the law that we broke when we disobeyed God. The original, original sin was disobeying God. So since it was a sin against God, it would require a God to answer it. No man could, pay, could give satisfaction for that sin. Okay? He came to atone for our sins and offer us salvation. He called us to repentance over and over again. He made it clear, John made it clear to us. Christ makes it clear, repeated, we have to repent our sins. Um, and that means even if we're not aware of them, you've got I me, mean, one of the reasons for the Divine Comedy was learning to be aware of our sins because so often we don't see them. <coughs> yeah? Um, lots of people didn't see Christ for who he was. The disciples constantly misread him, constantly. The Jews, for the most part, rejected him. The Romans, for the most part, rejected him. So nobody, very few people read him well. So we have to learn to atone for our sins, to repent them. I'm not sure that we can do that if we don't have an image of what perfect love is, so that we know the difference, our failings, how we don't love the way he does. Um, he asked us to love each other. He gave us a new commandment. Before that, he said, a slave does not know what his master's up to. He called them friends. He called us his friends. And he said, um, now that you're my friends, I ask you to love the way I do. To love, to completely give our lives for another. Remember, that was the subject of Wintersdale. To love another when we have no reason for doing that. What does the world know of that kind of love? To love another when we have no reason for doing it. Um, that's not an easy love. To pick up our cross, I'm just listing some of the major things to our faith. To pick up our cross and follow him. He also made it clear, it was an imperative, it was a command to, to um, eat his body, to drink his blood. He says in that passage, I think it's in John, I can't remember that, I should have gotten it, but he says, unless you eat of my body, drink my blood, um, you will have no part in my kingdom. That's a command um, to, to take the Eucharist, to, to take him into us. That's a command for him. Um, to, to propagate his teachings, he formed the church. <coughs> he gave the keys to Peter and said, what you loose is loosed in heaven. What you bind is he gave tremendous authority to the church. He gave the keys to, and he said, go out and baptize. So. The faith had to be propagated. If all the nations were going to come, people had to take it out. Right? So the very nature of Catholic faith is um, social. It's communal. It's a gathering together. It's not, a, it, it's not based on a private revelation or even a, a personal revelation of somebody with Christianity. It's absolutely Catholic in character. Christ himself is Catholic. He's one of three. The very nature of the Trinity is communal. That's the nature of God in. It's not private. The nature of Allah, the nature of Yahweh, is private. It's isolated. Without a notion of the Trinity, we don't have a notion of a social God. We don't have a notion that love by its nature is social, communal. So Christ himself is communal. He belongs to one of three in the Trinity. In taking on our human nature, he made us one with ourselves. 
It's Catholic in this sense that a great variety of perspectives confirmed him. He created the church and sent the church out. And he says, they will know you in my name. Well, I feel like I'm really in catechism here, out of, out of my depths. Um, he said, they will know you. You know the Father through me. They will know me through you. Um, so the very nature of Catholicism is communal. <coughs> he commissioned the Holy Spirit. The Spirit comes from him, not the Father. I send you the paraclete to continue this work. So we understand that the Holy Spirit is going to work through time in the church to take Christ to the world. Okay? Now one last thing. Before the Gospels were written, there was already a tradition underway. The Jewish tradition was already there carrying forward, right? And the disciples began to live it before the writing took place because as soon as he died, they were already gathering to eat bread. Paul makes that clear in Acts. I mean, gathering to break bread, to take the Eucharist. These things are already underway before Scripture is written. So to make scripture the last or the first or the final authority of things doesn't make sense. And moreover, even more importantly, we only get Christ through scriptures. We never, Christ was immediately before his disciples, right? He was there, present. We get Christ mediated. We get him through Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. So we're getting him through somebody. Not directly, not immediately. That means, and through the church, that means for us as Catholics, we have to listen to people. And we're supposed to bring Christ to them and look for him and others all around us. I mean, one of my objects in this whole thing, for the, all, the, one, the one reason I do these <coughs> lyrics, is to keep showing Christ, supernatural love, the wind hover, you know, we can go on. At the center of our faith is the sense of a community and that the Holy Spirit watches over it, moving it forward in time. One of my quarrels with Eastern Orthodoxy, or East, Eastern, yeah, Eastern Orthodoxy and Judaism or Islam, if you look at their art, their art isn't moving forward. They don't have a principle of renewal. One of the signs of health, I made this when we did the winter term, one of the signs of health under culture is that its art is always renewing itself. Where are the Christian artists, Catholic artists in our age? One of the signs that our faith is not doing well is we don't have a lot of artists. So our, the very nature of our, of our call from Christ is communal in the church to carry him forward with others, to listen to others, and hope that others will hear us. Now set that against a private revelation. Or the private revelation in the Reformation, where the Reformation made either either saw man as corrupted, number one, depraved, and isolated, alone, private. So that the very nature of Christianity becomes sort of privatized. Each person <coughs> becomes the arbiter of his own will and his own beliefs. What do we find when we open the books of Moby Dick? Melville's word for them is isolados. When Ishmael goes to the temple or the chapel, everybody's sitting alone. You don't want people sitting alone. 
Um, um, when you when you cook, sorry, <laughs> I'm gonna have to do penance for that one. <laughs> um, when he goes into the chapel, everybody's isolated. Remember that he shows the gravestones of all the people. They're grieving in their death. They're letting their grief for lost loved ones isolate them. So despair and death hang o- hangs over this work. So my question, I mean, the reason why did I go into all this? What's Melville's opening chapters are an indictment of Christianity. There's something wrong. Where does our Catholic faith fit in this? I think if you look at Melville, he's, I can't, it's hard for me to detect where he is on Christianity. He, he talks about these popish things. The typical way that most Protestants look at Catholic in the 19th century was that they were the Antichrist. I think you all know that novels were being written about strange things that happen in convents, that women take these maidens and perform all these sacrilegious sexual acts and, you know, convent dresses and there's this sense of mystery and um, um, some, um, what to call it, salacious, evil things, sexual things. The novels, the, the, the novels written in, about Catholicism were generally anti-Catholic, Catholicism is the Antichrist, so. Where does Catholicism fit in here? There's one scene in the quarterdeck where, where this almost, it's almost a parody of the Mass when, when Ahab gathers his crew together <laughs> to commit them to this quest so that they will go on to it. If you've read the quarterdeck, that's one of the most important chapters in the book. You remember that um, Starbuck wants to resist him because he didn't sign up for vengeance. He signed up to make money. I've got to look at that. It's, it, it takes us back to the Iliad, actually. It's going to take us back to the Iliad, but... Ahab gets all of these people to commit themselves and they drink from these goblets. It's like a parody of the Eucharist. Where was, a- or where was Melville on Catholicism? In, in one of the things, in one of his chapters, he talks about even the Pope bending down to kiss the shoes. This is a, the Good Thursday of Easter week. Remember when we wash feet? It's a very, it's a, it's a, um, a laudable description of a Catholic Pope. He's showing this kind of humility. So there's a really positive allusion to our faith. Our faith. Sometimes we, we get these references to popish things because that's not an uncommon way of looking at Catholic Church in the 19th century. So where is our faith? If, if we look at the faith this way, if here's the story. Here's Ishmael and Ahab at the center, right? Ishmael's the junior with Ahab, but Ishmael's also the storyteller. It's clear from the beginnings that his concern is a failed Protestant New England world. It's an Eastern Seaboard Protestant world culture. That's failed. It's failed. The Protestant theology has become inhuman. People have seen it for what it is. They're turning away from their faith. But they can't turn to anything else. The Catholic world is the Antichrist. Um, Where's it going? Um, Sorry. My mind. Oh, their faith 
has disintegrated into a moral code. It's a social moral code. How often does that happen for any of us as Christians? Um, where our faith disintegrates into a moral code. We become very respectable people living a bourgeois ideal. We want our comfort, we want our wealth, we want our security. What's going on in the opening chapters? Um, Lazarus is outside Peter Coffin's spouter in. Why isn't somebody taking care of him? We're taken right back to the Bible. Remember, Lazarus is ignored by the rich man. The rich man here happens to be Peter Coffin. When, it, when Mrs. Hussey finds the door locked and, and she had this experience of suicide, she goes frantic. I mean, she gets hysterical because she doesn't want to pay for another door. America has become so concerned with its commercial interests, its success, that it's lost its faith. It's turned into a moral code. Paul said of the Jews, the veil has come over them. It can be said of us, the veil has come over modern Christianity. So the question I want to ask here is, this is Protestant Christianity. Where are we? I mean, I tried to go into this just to make a difference, to some, I mean, a broad distinction between us as Catholics and a Protestant world because the differences are fundamental, but... Where are we? We're called to a cross against the comfort of the world. Where are we? Do we share in this indictment? Are we being indicted too? Do we belong with this group? Are we outside of it? Where are we? I don't want to press this. I just want to raise the question because Melville's Moby Dick is, is, is um, critiquing modern Christianity. It's, it's metaphysical roots. As we move along with Ahab, we're going to be looking at some of the most important principles at the, at the root of the Protestant world and at the Catholic world. Will we grasp them? Will we see them? Where are we? So this morning, what I want to do is just set out these broad questions um, because this is the first work that we've read. The Iliad, the Odyssey, the Aeneid, don't. Dante's Divine Comedy does. You know that 90% of the people in hell are Catholics. Um, <laughs> But we've not, we've not, Dante's, Dante, Dante's Divine Comedy um, is a great epic, and it's, as I presented it, it's a critique of our world. It's prophetic, because that's, that's the modern commercial republic. That's us. It's showing us ourselves. This is the first work since Dante, 13th century, first work since 13th, that deals explicitly with the American character the, the American Republic, its commercial nature, the greed, the envy that motivates us, that has affected our faith. So where are we in this book? I just want to throw those questions out. Right in the middle. <laughs> let, me, let me stop. I, I, wanted to, I wanted to look at some of the chapters. Let me just point you ahead and we'll stop because that's enough. That's a lot for this morning. <coughs> Hold on before you... Um, um, Look at Peter Coffin and um, Lazarus, Ms. Um Look at Quiquig. Remember when he's whittling his idol? Um, Ishmael comes to have so much respect for... I, I believe that's an incarnational <coughs> act. That's a, that's a cannibal. He's worshiping... And I, it's, I've told you, it's what I, you know, what I do with my books. If you look at my books, they're marked up. I feel like Quiquig. <laughs> Truly, I'm 
I, I, I'm not at ease with the, what do you call your little Kindle? Kindle. Be, because you can't mark it up. Um, yeah, you can. Oh, can you? Oh, yeah. Oh, good. I'm so glad. And then I'm relieved. I'm sure. <laughs> I you can make notes. You can do all oh, that. Oh, good. Okay. Okay. I'm glad you great. said that. One of my great fears for us as moderns is that we live in, you know, you've heard me say this, we live in a Gnostic world. It's taken the body out. We live in a Gnostic world. We're in our heads. The thought that we couldn't physically take something and mark it up troubles me. It does. It does. I want to mark. I mean, we. We should, we should all be cannibals in Mark <laughs> Anyway, look at Queequeg. When he, when, and, and look at the difference. What happens to, what happens to Ishmael the second night? What, what happens to his heart? And in that scene where Queequeg is whittling his God, and the sympathy that he has, and what it does for his Presbyterian faith. You know, because in that moment, he, he says... He chooses to become pagan, which in his mind, according to a Presbyterian, damns him. It puts him within. By the way, this is like Huck Finn. I don't know if you remember the Huck Finn story, but Huck Finn comes to that point where he has to let Jim go, the, the Negro slave, or keep him. And, he, and he, because he belongs to that Protestant world in the South, Mrs. I can't remember her name, Morris, or whatever her name was, that Jim is owned by her, and if he lets him go, he will be going against that established religious world. And the terms in which he looks at that decision is, um, if he does the wrong thing, he will damn himself. And he does what in his mind damns him. Ishmael faces that same sort of moment here. He's a Presbyterian. He's looking at this idolater. He's actually worshiping with his idolater, and, and, he, and at that moment he seems to give up his Presbyterian faith. Is he damning himself? How do we look at Ishmael? So how do we look at Queequeg? When we get to Mrs. Hussey, what do we learn there about our Christian faith? When we get to the, um, the ship captains, what is Peleg, what is Bildad reading? The Bible. What passage? Lay not your treasures up on earth. <laughs> Lay not your treasures up on earth. What does he pay Ishmael? Nothing. Practically nothing. What's he doing with the rest of his money? His treasures? Laying it up. Laying them up. <laughs> so, 401k. <laughs> <laughs> so, what are we learning about this Christian world that is our world? Let me leave it there, okay? Because it's I put out a lot, probably too much, you know, but... And I have to start my penance. I, I, I'm going to have to start my penance. <laughs> okay, let's call it a day. Glad to see you all again. All of you have a good week. Enjoy Moby Dick. Enjoy Moby Dick. It's a, it's a great book. And I'll see you in March. Are you away again? For what, that long?